0: Section 13 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 7, Part 2. 9. There are many passages in Augustine as to the utility of the law in leading us to implore divine assistance. Thus he writes to Hilary, The law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. In like manner he writes to Aselius, The utility of the law is that it convinces man of his weakness And compels him to apply for the medicine of grace, which is in Christ. In like manner, he says to Innocentius Romanus, The law orders, grace supplies the power of acting. Again to Valentinus, God enjoins what we cannot do in order that we may know that we have to ask of him. Again, The law was given that it might make you guilty. Being made guilty, might fear, fearing, might ask indulgence, not presume on your own strength. End quote. Again, quote, The law was given in order to convert a great into a little man, to show you that you have no power of your own for righteousness, and might thus, poor, needy, and destitute, flee to grace. End quote. He afterwards thus addresses the Almighty. Quote, So do, O Lord, so do, O merciful Lord, command what cannot be fulfilled, nay, command what cannot be fulfilled, unless by thy own grace, so that when men feel they have no strength in themselves to fulfill it, every mouth may be stopped, and no man seem great in his own eyes. Let all be little ones, let the whole world become guilty before God. But I am forgetting myself in producing so many passages, since this holy man wrote a distinct treatise, which he entitled De Spiritu et Litera*, The other branch of this first use he does not describe so distinctly, either because he knew that it depended on the former, or because he was not so well aware of it, or because he wanted words in which he might distinctly and clearly explain its proper meaning. But even in the reprobate themselves, this first office of the law is not altogether wanting. They do not, indeed, proceed so far with the children of God as, after the flesh is cast down, to be renewed in the inner man and revive again, but, stunned by the first terror, give way to despair. Still it tends to manifest the equity of the divine judgment when their consciences are thus heaved upon the waves. They would always willingly carp at the judgment of God, But now, though that judgment is not manifested, still the alarm produced by the testimony of the law and of their conscience bespeaks their deserts. 10. The second office of the law is, by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment, to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. Such persons are curbed not because their mind is inwardly moved and affected, but because, as if a bridle were laid upon them, they refrain their hands from external acts, and internally check the depravity which would otherwise petulantly burst forth. It is true, they are not on this account either better or more righteous in the sight of God, for although restrained by terror or shame, they dare not proceed to what their mind has conceived, nor give full license to their raging lust their heart is by no means trained to fear and obedience. Nay, the more they restrain themselves, the more they are inflamed, the more they rage and boil, prepared for any act or outbreak whatsoever were it not for the terror of the law. And not only so, but they thoroughly detest the law itself, and execrate the lawgiver, so that if they could, they would most willingly annihilate him, because they cannot bear either his ordering what is right, Or his avenging the despisers of his majesty the feeling of all who are not yet regenerate though in some more in others less lively is that in regard to the observance of the law they are not led by voluntary submission but dragged by the force of fear nevertheless this forced and extorted righteousness is necessary for the good of society its peace being secured by a provision but for which all things would be thrown into tumult and confusion nay this tuition is not without its use even to the children of god who previous to their effectual calling being destitute of the spirit of holiness freely indulge the lusts of the flesh when by the fear of divine vengeance they are deterred from open outbreakings though from not being subdued in mind they profit little at present still they are in some measure trained to bear the yoke of righteousness, so that when they are called, they are not like mere novices, studying a discipline of which previously they had no knowledge. This office seems to be especially in the view of the Apostle, when he says, that the law was not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. He thus indicates that it is a restraint on unruly lusts that would otherwise burst all bonds. 11. To both may be applied the declaration of the Apostle in another place that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, Galatians 3, verse 24. Since there are two classes of persons, whom by its training it leads to Christ. Some, of whom we spoke in the first place, from excessive confidence in their own virtue or righteousness, are unfit to receive the grace of Christ until they are completely humbled. This the law does by making them sensible of their misery, and so disposing them to long for what they previously imagined they did not want. Others have need of a bridle to restrain them from giving full scope to their passions, and thereby utterly losing all desire after righteousness. For where the Spirit of God rules not, the lusts sometimes so burst forth as to threaten to drown the soul subjected to them in forgetfulness and contempt of God, and so they would, did not God interpose with this remedy. Those, therefore, whom he has destined to the inheritance of his kingdom, if he does not immediately regenerate, he, through works of the law, preserves in fear against the time of his visitation, not, indeed, that pure and chaste fear which his children ought to have, but a fear useful to the extent of instructing them in true piety according to their capacity of this we have so many proofs that there is not the least need of an example for all who have remained for some time in ignorance of god will confess as the result of their own experience that the law had the effect of keeping them in some degree in the fear and reverence of god till being regenerated by his spirit they began to love him from the heart twelve the third use of the law being also the principal use, and more closely connected with its proper end, has respect to believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already flourishes and reigns. For although the law is written and engraven on their hearts by the finger of God, that is, although they are so influenced and actuated by the Spirit that they desire to obey God, there are two ways in which they still profit in the law for it is the best instrument for enabling them daily to learn with greater truth and certainty what that will of the Lord is which they aspire to follow, and to confirm them in this knowledge, just as a servant who desires with all his soul to approve himself to his master must still observe and be careful to ascertain his master's dispositions that he may comport himself in accommodation to them. Let none of us deem ourselves exempt from this necessity, for none have as yet attained to such a degree of wisdom as they may not, by the daily instruction of the law, advance to a purer knowledge of the divine will. Then, because we need not doctrine merely, but exhortation also, the servant of God will derive this further advantage from the law. By frequently meditating upon it, he will be excited to obedience and confirmed in it, and so drawn away from the slippery paths of sin. In this way must the saints press onward, since, however great the alacrity with which, under the spirit, they hasten towards righteousness, they are retarded by the sluggishness of the flesh, and make less progress than they ought. The law acts like a whip to the flesh, urging it on as men do a lazy sluggish ass. Even in the case of a spiritual man, inasmuch as he is still burdened with the weight of the flesh, the law is a constant stimulus pricking him forward when he would indulge in sloth. David had this use in view when he pronounced this high eulogium on the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. Again, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. The whole psalm abounds in passages to the same effect. Such passages are not inconsistent with those of Paul, which show not the utility of the law to the regenerate, but what it is able of itself to bestow. The object of the psalmist is to celebrate the advantages which the Lord, by means of his law, bestows on those whom he inwardly inspires with a love of obedience. And he adverts not to the mere precepts, but also to the promise annexed to them, which alone makes that sweet, which in itself is bitter. For what is less attractive than the law, when, by its demands and threatening, it overawes the soul and fills it with terror? David specially shows that in the law he saw the mediator, without whom it gives no pleasure or delight. 13. Some unskillful persons, from not attending to this, boldly discard the whole law of Moses and do away with both its tablets, imagining it unchristian to adhere to a doctrine which contains the ministration of death. Far from our thoughts be this profane notion. Moses has admirably shown that the law, which can produce nothing but death in sinners, ought to have a better and more excellent effect upon the righteous. When about to die, he thus addressed the people, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do, all the words of this law, for it is not a vain thing for you because it is your life. Deuteronomy 32, verses 46 and 47. If it cannot be denied that it contains a perfect pattern of righteousness, then, unless we ought not to have any proper rule of life, it must be impious to discard it. There are not various rules of life, but one perpetual and inflexible rule, and therefore, when David describes the righteous as spending their whole lives in meditating on the law, Psalm 1, verse 2, we must not confine to a single age an employment which is most appropriate to all ages, even to the end of the world nor are we to be deterred or to shun its instructions, because the holiness which it prescribes is stricter than we are able to render, so long as we bear about the prison of the body. It does not now perform toward us the part of a hard taskmaster, who will not be satisfied without full payment, but, in the perfection to which it exhorts us, points out the goal at which, during the whole course of our lives, it is not less our interest than our duty to aim it is well if we thus press onward our whole life is a race and after we have finished our course the lord will enable us to reach that goal to which at present we can only aspire in wish fourteen since in regard to believers the law has a force of exhortation not to bind their consciences with a curse but by urging them from time to time to shake off sluggishness and chastise imperfection many when they would express this exemption from the curse say that in regard to believers the law i still mean the moral law is abrogated not that the things which it enjoins are no longer right to be observed but only that it is not to believers what it formerly was in other words that it does not by terrifying and confounding their consciences condemn and destroy it is certainly true that paul shows in clear terms that there is such an abrogation of the law, and that the same was preached by our Lord appears from this, that he would not have refuted the opinion of his destroying the law, if it had not been prevalent among the Jews. Since such an opinion could not have arisen at random without some pretext, there is reason to presume that it originated in a false interpretation of his doctrine, in the same way in which all errors generally arise from a perversion of the truth. But lest we should stumble against the same stone, let us distinguish accurately between what has been abrogated in the law and what still remains in force. When the Lord declares that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill, Matthew 5, verse 17, that until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall remain unfulfilled, he shows that his advent was not to derogate in any degree from the observance of the law and justly, since the very end of his coming was to remedy the transgression of the law. Therefore the doctrine of the law has not been infringed by Christ, but remains that by teaching, admonishing, rebuking, and correcting, it may fit and prepare us for every good work. 15. What Paul says as to the abrogation of the law evidently applies not to the law itself, but merely to its power of constraining the conscience. For the law not only teaches, but also imperiously demands. If obedience is not yielded, nay, if it is omitted in any degree, it thunders forth its curse. For this reason the apostle says that, As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Galatians 3, verse 10, Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Those he describes as under the works of the law, who do not place righteousness in that forgiveness of sins by which we are freed from the rigor of the law. He therefore shows that we must be freed from the fetters of the law, if we would not perish miserably under them. But what fetters? Those of rigid and austere exaction, which remits not one iota of the demand, and leaves no transgression unpunished. To redeem us from the curse, Christ was made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, compared with Galatians 3, verse 13, and chapter 4, verse 4. In the following chapter, indeed, he says that, quote, Christ was made under the law in order that he might redeem those that were under the law. End quote but the meaning is the same, for he immediately adds, quote, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Quote. What does this mean? That we might not be all our lifetime subject to bondage, having our consciences oppressed with the fear of death. Meanwhile, it must ever remain an indubitable truth that the law has lost none of its authority, but must always receive from us the same respect and obedience. 16. The case of ceremonies is different, these having been abrogated not in effect but in use only. Though Christ by his advent put an end to their use, so far is this from derogating from their sacredness, that it rather commends and illustrates it. For as these ceremonies would have given nothing to God's ancient people but empty show, if the power of Christ's death and resurrection had not been prefigured by them, So, if the use of them had not ceased, it would, in the present day, be impossible to understand for what purpose they were instituted. Accordingly, Paul, in order to prove that the observance of them was not only superfluous, but pernicious also, says that they, are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ, Colossians 2, verse 17. We see, therefore, that the truth is made clearer by their abolition than if Christ, who had been openly manifested, were still figured by them as at a distance and as under a veil. By the death of Christ, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, the living and express image of heavenly things which had begun to be dimly shadowed forth being now brought fully into view, as is described by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verse 1. To the same effect our Saviour declares that the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Luke 16, verse 16. Not that the Holy Fathers were left without the preaching of the hope of salvation and eternal life, but because they only saw at a distance and under a shadow what we now behold in full light. Why it behaved the church to ascend higher than these elements is explained by John the Baptist when he says, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John 1, verse 17. For though it is true that expiation was promised in the ancient sacrifices, and the Ark of the Covenant was a sure pledge of the paternal favor of God, the whole would have been delusory had it not been founded on the grace of Christ, wherein true and eternal stability is found. It must be held as a fixed point that, though legal rights ceased to be observed, their end serves to show more clearly how great their utility was before the advent of Christ, who, while he abolished the use, sealed their force and effect by his death. 17. There is a little more difficulty in the following passage of Paul, You, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, etc. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. He seems to extend the abolition of the law considerably farther, as if we had nothing to do with its injunctions. Some err in interpreting this simply of the moral law, as implying the abolition not of its injunctions, but of its inexorable rigor. Others, examining Paul's words more carefully, see that they properly apply to the ceremonial law, and show that Paul repeatedly uses the term ordinance in this sense. He thus writes to the Ephesians, He is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man. Ephesians 2 verse 14 There can be no doubt that he is here treating of ceremonies as he speaks of the middle wall of partition which separated Jews and Gentiles. I therefore hold that the former view is erroneous, but at the same time it does not appear to me that the latter comes fully up to the apostles' meaning for I cannot admit that the two passages are perfectly parallel. As his object was to assure the Ephesians that they were admitted to fellowship with the Jews, he tells them that the obstacle which formerly stood in the way was removed. This obstacle was in the ceremonies, for the rites of ablution and sacrifice by which the Jews were consecrated to the Lord separated them from the Gentiles. But who sees not that, in the epistle to the Colossians, a sublimer mystery is adverted to no doubt a question is raised there as to the mosaic observances to which false apostles were endeavoring to bind the christian people but as in the epistle to the galatians he takes a higher view of this controversy and in a manner traces it to its foundation so he does in this passage also for if the only thing considered in rites is the necessity of observing them Of what use was it to call it a handwriting which was contrary to us? Besides, how would the bringing in of it be set down as almost the whole sum of redemption? Wherefore, the very nature of the case clearly shows that reference is here made to something more internal. I cannot doubt that I have ascertained the genuine interpretation, provided I am permitted to assume what Augustine has somewhere most truly affirmed, nay derived from the very words of the apostle that is that in the jewish ceremonies there was more a confession than an expiation of sins for what more was done in sacrifice by those who substituted purifications instead of themselves than to confess that they were conscious of deserving death what did these purifications testify but that they themselves were impure by these means therefore the handwriting both of their guilt and impurity was ever and anon renewed. But the attestation of these things was not the removal of them. Wherefore, the apostle says that Christ is, quote, the mediator of the New Testament, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, Hebrews 9, verse 15. Justly, therefore, does the apostle describe these handwritings as against the worshippers, and contrary to them, since by means of them their impurity and condemnation were openly sealed. There is nothing contrary to this in the fact that they were partakers of the same grace with ourselves. This they obtained through Christ, and not through the ceremonies which the apostle there contrasts with Christ, showing that by the continued use of them the glory of Christ was obscured. We perceive how ceremonies, considered in themselves, are elegantly and appositely termed handwritings, and contrary to the salvation of man, inasmuch as they were a kind of formal instruments which attested his liability. On the other hand, when false apostles wished to bind them on the Christian church, Paul, entering more deeply into their signification, with good reason warned the Colossians how seriously they would relapse if they allowed a yoke to be in that way imposed upon them. By so doing, they, at the same time, deprived themselves of all benefit from Christ, who, by his eternal sacrifice once offered, had abolished those daily sacrifices, which were indeed powerful to attest sin, but could do nothing to destroy it. End of section 13